As you tackle this tonight, and I know everyone's looking forward to that, um, I, only, I only ask that... Uh, don't, don't ever be swayed by a deadbeat. Um, don't do that. You're better than that. You people are better than that. Um, I only ask Dr. Kraft, as far afield as you take the discussion, please try not to mention George Burns or John Denver. Uh, I, think, I hope that's not asking too much. I know I date myself with that brilliant reference. Um, so ladies and gentlemen, it's my privilege to give you Dr. Peter Craved. Thank you, Woody. I can't get Socrates out of the back of my head, so I imagine Socrates here listening to what Woody just said. And I think the first thing he would say is, what? Deadbeats? Money? You make them pay money for wisdom? Oh, Dr. Kraft is your intellectual prostitute. Oh, and Eric, you're his pimp. He never took money for his teaching. Well, the secret of whatever wisdom I may have is in my tie. Uh, if you make a mathematical proportion between the number of people who teach philosophy in prestigious universities and the population, Boston is the most philosophical city in the world and New York is one of the least. The reason is that philosophy is the love of wisdom. Wisdom comes through suffering. We have the Red Sox and you have the Yankees. <laughs> We're really masochists. We enjoy being beaten year after year. This is the part of the problem of suffering. If we ever won the World Series, we wouldn't know what to do. The meaning of life would be gone. We're no longer the chosen people. <laughs> when I started giving speeches many, many worlds ago, uh, I, I wrote them and that was dull. Then I outlined them, and that was a little better. And now I just give samples, and that's best of all, because I've discovered that whenever I'm on the other side of the podium, I'm bored. And whenever I'm on this side of the podium, I'm not bored. I always learn more by teaching than by being on the other side of the desk. And you probably do too. But in the question and answer session, you're allowed to share the desk with me. So I have a theory that everybody endures the purgatory of having to listen to a monologue for a long time just in order to get to the only interesting part, which is the question and answer session, which is like heaven. So I'm going to make the speech short, I hope, and uh, there will be many questions. I command that there will be many questions. Besides, I remember only a few big ideas from all the lectures that I've heard in my life, whether in the classroom or out of the classroom, and some of them are quite precious, and I don't remember a single outline of anybody's lecture that I ever heard. So I don't think it's terribly important that the lecture be cleverly and carefully outlined. So I'm going to give you a very, very thin outline, like a string, and try to put some pearls on it by addressing three questions in order. Uh, I wrote a book about each of these three questions many moons ago. One is, what is the meaning of death? And the book is, Love is Stronger Than Death. And the second question is, what do we really want to happen after death? Well, we want to go to heaven. What do we want heaven to be? There's a mystery there. We can't imagine a heaven that's not boring. 
So the next book is Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Longing. And then finally, what will we really find after death? And I wrote a book with a stupid title, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Heaven But Never Dreamed of Asking. Because my daughter once asked me when she was about five years old, uh, when my cat dies, will I have my cat in heaven? And I said, if you really want your cat in heaven, you'll have your cat in heaven because everybody in heaven is happy. Uh, maybe you won't want your cat. Oh, I will. Oh, well, then you'll have him. Oh, well, she didn't, she didn't let me go. She said, will my cat be happy? I said, yeah, sure, everybody in heaven is happy. Oh, well, my cat's not happy unless he eats. Will he eat in heaven? I said, well, maybe your cat will be happy by some other means than eating. Oh, no, no. Cat's got to eat. All right, then your cat will. Well, if he will eat, uh, will he eat cat food? He's not happy with dog food or anything else. Well, yes, if the only way he can be happy is with cat food, then cat. Well, where will the cat food come from? Will it be made in cans? I think cans are ugly. I don't like canned food. And cans are made in factories. I think factories are ugly. Are there factories in heaven? I said, no, I don't think there's factories in heaven. Well, then where do the cats get the cat food? And then it showed her brilliance. I said, I don't know. So she said, well, then, why don't you write a book about it? <laughs> I don't know. Then why do you write a book? If I can give you just a few big ideas by stringing them on this thread, and if even one of these ideas is haunting enough and obsessive enough to make you a little uncomfortable, and to make you think, not just because it's pleasant to sit here as a, a substitute for the Apollo, uh, but because you have to think about it. It's like a tiger, and it's got you in its teeth. Then this is worthwhile. In fact, if there's one person in this room who is haunted by one idea that I toss out tonight, I think it will be worthwhile. Well, let's start with death. It's the one thing that's certain. Augustine has a wonderful little passage somewhere where he says, I just came from a baptism, and I listened to the parents and friends and family talk about the baby, and they said, I wonder if he'll be famous someday. I wonder if he'll be virtuous. I wonder if he'll have a long life. I wonder if he'll be healthy. Maybe so, maybe not. How come nobody ever said, I wonder if he'll die? Maybe so, maybe not. It's the one certainty, and yet it's the great mystery. To use another image from Augustine, life, he says, is like a river. On that river is everything. Plants, animals, stars, galaxies, civilizations, people, ancestors, everything. Flotsam and jetsam on that river. And nobody can get off the river. It's called time, or life, or lifetime. And we trace the river back to a dark, unexplorable cave called birth. Where did we come from? No one knows. And we look in the other direction, and we find that the river goes down and disappears into another equally dark, equally unexplorable cave called Death. The undiscovered country from whom no traveler returns. The other great mystery. And here we find ourselves bobbing and weaving for a few precious moments between the two emptinesses of eternity. What an astonishing situation. But that's where we are. There's a passage in the 8th century book written by an English monk called The Venerable Bede. It, the book is called the, the History of the Church in England. And he tells how the first missionaries from Italy came into England and uh, were captured by one of the Scottish thanes 
uh, and missionaries routinely were executed in those days. But this Thane was rather wise, and he said, don't execute the missionary. And his soldier said, why not? And he said, do you see where we are in this mead hole, feasting around this fire, eating roast pig, while uh, outside there is the darkness and the cold and the winter storm? Did you notice the little sparrow that flew in from the dark winter storm through the east window and flew around our fire, circled it once, and flew out again through the west window. Methinks we are that sparrow, and the east window is birth, and the west window is death. Now, this strange foreigner claims to have some knowledge of what's outside those windows. So before we chop his head off, I want to pick his brains. A wise man. Why do we die? That was one of Buddha's great questions. The four distressing sights that made Gautama Siddhartha a philosopher when he had been indulged by his father with a perfect life in the palace in order to make him follow his footsteps and become a great king, uh, he saw first uh, a sick man, a suffering man. Why do people suffer? He couldn't figure it out. Then on the second trip he saw uh, an old man. Why do people get old? He couldn't figure it out. The third time, he saw a dead man. His father had not told him about death. He had never seen anything dead. And he said to his chariot driver, What's that? That is death, O oh my lord Gautama. Why do people die? No one knows. Will this happen to other people than him? Oh, yes, it will happen to everyone. Will it happen to me too? Yes. Why? No one knows. This is intolerable, he said. Someone must know. Take me back. And he meditated fruitlessly on the problems of uh, suffering and old age and death. And then on the fourth night, he saw the fourth distressing sight. Some old Hindu holy men, the sannyasin, who had lived a complete life and given it all up and become ascetics. He said, why are these men begging rice? Well, they were once rich, but now they, uh, they live a life of poverty and simplicity. Why? Well, they want something more impressive than the goods of the world. What is that? Wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom would answer life's greatest questions. You mean, like, why do we suffer and why do we die? Yes. Ah, I shall become one of them. So he became one of them. Well, that's where philosophy begins with tough questions. If we didn't have unanswerable questions, we wouldn't have philosophers. Philosophy never begins in comfortable times. Every age where there's been a flourishing of philosophy, such as the fifth century BC in Athens that produced Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, or the 13th century around the University of Paris that produced St. Thomas Aquinas, or the 19th century around the University of Berlin that produced Kant and Hegel and their successors, they've always been times of crisis. Now, if you were to ask me, who are the greatest living philosophers today, I couldn't answer you. But I think there's going to be some, because we're living in increasingly critical times. 9-11 was just the beginning. So I'm expecting some great 20th, 21st century philosophy. Because questions like, like Eric asked, why are some people mean? That's a profound question. You're not happy when you're mean. Don't we want to be happy? So why are we mean? We've lived this experiment millions of times. Be nasty, be mean, be selfish, and the result is always misery. And we don't like misery, and we like happiness. And then we live the opposite philosophy. 
Let us be loving. Let us be egoless. Let us be charitable. And it always works. It always makes us happy. So why don't we do it all the time? We're nuts. We're crazy. Well, death is one of those kind of questions. I love the passage from Zorba the Greek, where Zorba is talking to a scholar. And it seems that Zorba is this great, passionate hero, and he's got at least all the questions. And the scholar is just a scholar. What does he know anyway? So Zorba says, why do the young die? Why does anybody die? Tell me. And the scholar who's honest says, I don't know. So Zorba says, what's the use of all your damn books? If they don't tell you that, what the hell do they tell you? And the scholar gives a great answer. They tell me about the agony of men who can't answer questions like yours. <laughs> Even if you don't get an answer, a question is precious. That's why I love philosophy. I think it's one of the most creative things in the world. Questions never just occur, like apartment buildings or storms or rocks. You never bump into questions. You create questions. And only you can create a question. Philosophers sometimes ask, how is a human being distinguished from an animal? And sometimes they ask, how is human intelligence distinguished from artificial intelligence or computer intelligence? I think the answer to both questions is identical. Neither animals nor computers ask questions. We ask questions. You can program a computer to ask questions, but it's not going to question its most recent programming. Well, this question of the meaning of death is also the question of the meaning of life, because death puts all of life into question, not just part of it. It's the one absolutely universal experience, not just in the sense that we'll all have it, but it's an experience which asks a question about all of life. There's a great scene in Don Quixote where Sancho Panza comes back from the wars and he tells Don Quixote about the look in the face of the dying soldiers that died in his arms. And Don Quixote says, uh, was, was it a questioning look? Yes, it was. I'll bet I know what question they were asking. Why am I dying? Oh, no, said Sancho Panza. The question is, why was I living? If it all ends in death, what good is it? Well, because the meaning of death leads to the question of the meaning of life, it also leads to the religious question, the meaning of God. Because if there's a God, God's the meaning of life. That's simply the meaning of the word God. Zeus isn't the meaning of life. Zeus may be a God. But a religion like Buddhism that doesn't have a God is, I think, more religion, more religious than paganism, which does, because Zeus is not the whole meaning of life, but nirvana is. Zeus doesn't have divine attributes. Nirvana does, even though it's not a person. So every religion asks these three questions. What is the meaning of death? What is the meaning of life? And what is the meaning of God, or something like God? You can't ask one of those questions without being involved in the others. Well, in this book, Love is Stronger Than Death, I tried to use a method that philosophers call phenomenology. It's a fancy word for a very simple thing. It means, basically, thinking clearly and logically and honestly and without presuppositions about your experience. Getting data, testing all theories by data, not just empirical data, but the data from your whole experience, your ordinary, everyday experience. And using that method, I came to the conclusion that when we think about death, we think about it in five different ways. And these five ways are related 
not in a logical progression, but in a kind of psychological progression. It's something like Elizabeth Keebler-Ross's famous book on death and dying, which for the first time tabulated the five natural stages by which you face death. First there's anger, then there's denial, then there's bargaining, finally there's peace. Well, these are not psychological stages. These are philosophical stages, stages of natural stages of the investigation of the meaning of death. What kind of a thing is death? And all five stages are personified. Now, it's difficult for us to think abstractly because we're animals. We learn everything through our senses. We abstract from that and get to higher ground, but only on that basis. So it's much easier for us to use concrete images. That's why all the great teachers in the world use parables and stories. And the highest image that we have for anything is the body. People ask me, what is a soul? And I say, well, I can't define it in terms of an image. Well, you've got to give me an image. Okay, the best image for the human soul is the human body. So we think of death as a human being. This is a stock in trade. Whether death has a white sheet and a scythe, or whether death is a grinning skull, or whether death is a, a, a mask of emptiness, you think of death as a person. Of course, death's not a person, but that's a concrete image. All right, what kind of person? Well, there are different relationships to people, and one of them, and that we naturally start with, is an enemy. Death is your enemy. None of us like it. Woody Allen says somewhere, it's very convenient, it can spoil your whole day. Uh, if you don't start there, you're not honest. If you go through that too quickly, you're not honest. Let me give you a little story about that. Our neighbor, who's a very nice woman, had a son who was the same age as my son, and when both were about five years old, uh, my neighbor's son's playmate, who was his cousin, suddenly died in 24 hours. He was healthy one day, he got some terrible infection, uh, and died in 24 hours, and it was, a, it was a terrific shock. So I was away teaching at Boston College, and I came home, my wife told me what happened. Uh, I said, that's terrible. Well, uh, our neighbor came over and, uh, and talked to her, and they tried to comfort each other. So uh, my wife said, well, what did you tell poor Stephen? And she said, well, I went to the bookstore and bought a book about how to talk to death, about death to children. So I started getting suspicious. If you've got to go to a bookstore to buy a book about this, it's not coming from your natural. Anyway, she said, well, what did the book say? Oh, well, I found the book very, very consoling, she said. It said death is just another stage of life, and it's inevitable, and uh, you must accept it as part of the cosmic cycle, and uh, uh, everything comes back, and, uh, and little Kevin, who just died, uh, is not really dead, but he's, uh, he's fertilizing the plants that you see next spring. And, uh, and, I, and my wife said, well, what do you believe? And the woman said, well, I don't believe anything about life after death. She said, I just, I just found that consoling. She said, I don't believe there's a life after death at all. I said, and, and then she said, well, what did you tell Stephen? Well, she said, that's what I told Stephen, uh, what the book said. And what was Stephen's reaction? Well, that was a strange thing, my neighbor said. He said, give me the book. And he took it out of my hands, and without reading it, he threw it on the ground, ran up to his bedroom, slammed the door, and said, I don't want Kevin to be fertilizer. I said, the kid is a lot smarter than his mother. 
Here, contrast two very different attitudes towards death on the part of a great scientist and a great poet, Sigmund Freud and Dylan Thomas. Sigmund Freud wants to relieve as much suffering as possible. His solution to the problem of human life is, by his own admission, a very partial one. He can help you to exchange unendurable suffering for endurable suffering. <laughs> he can create moderate homeostasis in the psychic forces within you and between you and society. But with regard to death, he says, we must make friends with the necessity of dying. He's a Stoic. It's inevitable, so here's your choice. You can either die in rebellion, or you can die without rebellion. If you add rebellion, that adds to the pain. It's like being in the dentist chair. There's going to be pain. Now, if you hate it and there's fear, you add psychic pain and adrenaline, and uh, you'll make the pain worse. So, why do that? That's stupid. That's utterly rational. But I don't think there's a normal human being in the world that's not suspicious of that. It's totally rational. And yet, when we read Dylan Thomas, the romantic poet, the praiser of something other than rationality, and when we hear him write a poem to his old father who's dying, and when he says in that poem, do not go gentle into that good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light, we say, hurrah. Or maybe I do that because I'm a Red Sox fan. We never beat death, just like we never beat the Yankees, but it's noble to fight anyway. Well, I suggest that there are deeper faces of death, but unless you go through the first one, death is an enemy, you're not totally honest. But if you go through death as an enemy, you're tempted to go into the second face of death, which I call death as a stranger, the denial of death. People don't die, they pass away. Half of our funeral rites are devoted to showing the truth, and the other half is devoted to concealing it. Uh, the old Irish wake is devoted to showing the truth. Look, he's dead. You've got a couple of days to go there and see the coffin, and there's usually an open coffin. But in the American way of death, as satirized in that wonderful novel by Evelyn Waugh, The Loved One, uh, every possible way is used to evade the, the horrible fact, because we don't like it. William James talks in some ways, he's one of my favorite philosophers, he's very honest and he can write. Uh, not all philosophers are honest, most philosophers can't write. He says there's two totally different types of minds, the tough-minded and the tender-minded, and they can never understand each other, because the tough-minded want facts. They want the truth and they want to start with data. And the tender-minded want happiness. And when the two conflict, there's no way of mediating the argument because each has an opposite absolute. Well, if you embrace death as a stranger, it's because you're tender-minded. It's unendurable. The more you love life, the more you will hate death. If you're indifferent to life and you say, oh, well, you know, life, it's cheap, throw it away, no big deal. But if you've got blood in your veins, the more you love life, the more you hate death. There's a, one people in the history of the world that I think has taught us more than anybody else. It's the Jews. They taught us who God is. They taught us what life is. They taught us what death is. And they taught us that death is an outrage. Moses' last advice to them before he dies, Moses is their great prophet. A prophet means mouth. He's the big mouth. God's big mouth. 
He says in two words, choose life. Life's great. And insofar as life's great, death's awful. And death's so awful that we're tempted to just run away from it. We can't handle it. So we treat death as a stranger. We cover it up. But that's only temporary. Death's going to follow you. And eventually, you're going to have to turn and face it. So if death as an enemy is not livable, you'll always lose. If death as a stranger is not livable, it's dishonest. What can you hope to emerge into? Can you possibly turn that enemy into a friend? Yes, you can. There are quite rational, natural, philosophical considerations that do not depend on religious belief, which can at least partly get into stage three, death as a friend. For instance, imagine there's no death. Imagine our scientists discover what half of the world's geneticists now say is theoretically possible, namely artificial immortality. They've discovered that death, like everything else, is genetically conditioned. And half of them think that it is possible in theory, and most of them say it'll happen in two or three hundred years, to reverse that genetic programming, to learn from the cancer cell or the amoeba, neither of which have natural death, they're, they're very simple. Their somatic cells and their sex cells are not genetically differentiated, so they don't die unless by accident. If we could somehow replicate everything else in the human genome except that and take out the little programming that says thou shalt get old and die and replace it with the programming that says thou shalt never get old and die, we'd have a, an, an artificially immortal human being. Exactly like us in every way except that once we reach maturity, we'd stay there forever. Now, I don't know whether that's scientifically possible or not. The jury is still out on it. But as a thought experiment, suppose it happened. Wouldn't that be great? There was a book written in the 80s by a Swedish journalist named Osborne Siegerberg called The Immortality Factor. He wrote the book because he discovered that most of the world's geneticists were working on this project. And it was very theoretical then. They didn't have the genome map that they have today. So... After interviewing the geneticists and thinking that it's possible, he then interviewed two other types of people. Some of them were alive. They were psychologists. Some of them were dead, writers about death, especially in the old myths. And he found an astonishing contrast be be between most of the psychologists and most of the myths, old myths, and modern science fiction stories. Most of the psychologists, especially the behaviorists, Almost everybody except the existential psychologist said, this would be great. No more fear, as much time as you want. We could relax. Life would be a vacation. Wow, terrific. But almost all of the myths said, this would be terrible. What a horrible thing. Immortality, the flying Dutchman, ghosts, they can't die, the undead. How come the contrast? Well, because the myths come from our unconscious wisdom. And psychology, at least modern psychology, is or tries to be a science which comes from our conscious wisdom. We're torn apart. On the one hand, we see death, yes, is our enemy, but yet we need it. It's our friend, somehow. But we can't reconcile those two things. Until we think, if there's no death, then that's like making a picture without a frame. Here, let's suppose the Mona Lisa is the most beautiful picture of a woman in the history of art. 
And now let's suppose you say, let's have more of it. Let's not have the Mona Lisa limited to just her. Let's bring in her family. And let's bring in her extended family. And let's bring in the next block. Let's extend the frame. No frame, no limit around her. So all of Italy is in the picture, and all the world is in the picture, and all of the extraterrestrials are in the picture, and all the angels are in the picture. What's the picture of now? Nothing. Everything and nothing. We understand things only by contrast. If there's no frame, it's everything, and everything becomes nothing. So in all the science fiction stories about artificial immortality, it's always a curse. Arthur C. Clarke's book, Childhood's End, these extraterrestrials come and give us the secret of artificial immortality, and life gets so boring, everybody wants to commit suicide. <laughs> so we need death. Death is a friend. Heidegger says death is our very being. It doesn't come to us from outside. As soon as you're born, you begin to die. Our being is a being towards death because it's a temporal and limited being. So unless you accept death, you don't accept yourself. In Waiting for Godot, Beckett uses this remarkable single-sentence image for death. We give birth astride a grave. Imagine a pregnant woman giving birth in the old-fashioned position, not lying on her back, but crouching like the other mammals, and the baby falls from her womb, where? Into the tomb. In the image, it takes seven seconds. In life, it takes 70 years. Is there a difference in principle there or just a difference in quantity? Is there any relationship that includes all these things? Is there any human image that goes beyond death as a stranger, death as a friend, and death as an enemy? Is there a human being that we usually feel sometimes that's my enemy, sometimes that's my friend, sometimes that's a stranger? Sure, mother. And here's perhaps the oldest image of all for death, death as a mother. What's a mother? Well, you can define a mother in different ways, but one way of defining a mother, please don't be insulted, a mother is a birth canal surrounded by a person. A mother is a door, a door by which we enter the world. Well, maybe death is a door by which we exit the world, and maybe the whole world is a mother. If you could converse with an unborn baby, and you were to ask the baby the question, uh, where are you? The baby would say, well, I'm, I'm here. Well, are, are you in the world? Are you in the same world as New York City? Are you in the same world as Jerusalem? Are you in the same world as Yankee Stadium? He said, what are you talking about? No. If those things exist, they're in the next world. They're far away. They're, they're a myth. And if there are two of them, twins, you might have one who believed in life after birth and the other who didn't believe in life after birth and have an <laughs> argument. But when they're born, when they're born, they discover two things. One, there is life after birth, and it does include Yankee Stadium and everything else. Uh, and, number two, they were always here. They just didn't see it until they were born. Now, since the closest analogy we have for death is birth, since these patients who go through the tunnel and see the being of light and whatnot seem to be, on an unconscious level, replicating the birth experience, it's the most natural and reasonable image of all to think that death is going to be a lot like birth. Well, what's the mother then? The universe. It looks so big here. Well, the womb looked very big to the unborn baby. And 
maybe when we die, we'll look back on Mother Earth or Mother Universe, which birthed us, and say, boy, it looked so big when we were there. But it's tiny. It's only 18 billion light years wide. It's nothing compared with where we are now. And we'll say, you know, we were always in heaven. We just didn't know it. One of the saints, I forget who it is, says, and C.S. Lewis must have taken this image from this saint in that great scene at the end of the last battle where the dwarfs are in heaven but close their eyes so they're, in effect, in hell. Uh, heaven and hell are the same place. Same place. And what exists there is the same thing. God, the light of God, the love of God, that's all there is, that's infinite. But those in hell hate it and those in heaven love it. If you have made yourself the kind of person that loves love, then the only home for you is heaven. And if you have made yourself the kind of person that hates love and loves hate, then the only place for you is hell. But hell is a state of mind. Heaven is an objective reality. They're both real, and the difference between them is infinite. So the dualism between heaven and hell is absolutely true. But hell is not one place, like New Jersey, and heaven another place, like New York. <laughs> Quite possible. Quite possible. I don't know. It's subject to correction by professional theologians, that seems reasonable to me. Well, then, if death is a mother and it births us into more, that's wonderful. Then it's possible to taste a little bit of the fifth stage of death, which I call death as a lover. And the mystics seem to have a kind of love affair with death, which is at the opposite extreme from the death wish. This tie is not really a death wish, but you might think so in New York City. You know, it's a Red Sox tie. But to have a death wish is to hate life and to prefer death. But when the mystics welcome death, when St. Francis of Assisi calls death sister death, that's something quite different. He's seeing death as the golden chariot that the great prince sends to fetch Cinderella from the ashes of her dying world uh, to the castle to live with him forever. There's no proof of that. I don't offer proof. Phenomenology isn't a matter of logic and proof. It's a matter of, of, of inviting pictures. I think we're hooked more on pictures and stories than on proofs. Proofs compel, but they're abstract, they're thin. Whereas pictures and stories are real. If you actually experience people in a certain situation and you come away with an image in, in your mind, you can never think the same again. If, if for instance, you, you're a militarist and say war is glorious and you actually go on the battlefield and see people dying, uh, you might come back as a pacifist. Maybe. If you have rational justifications for abortion and you go into an abortion clinic and see what happens there, or if you're a, a mother who is considering an abortion and you, 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 you look at what's inside you and you feel what's inside you, there's not a rational argument. There's just something concrete there that changes. Whether those are good analogies or not doesn't matter. The principle is argument is one thing, seeing is another thing. Nobody that I know thinks that heaven's going to be full of arguments. The traditional picture is that it's, that it's a seeing, it's a vision, or maybe hearing, like music. Well, talking about heaven opens the next topic, and I'll be very brief on this one. Uh, 
I've written about 45 books. This is my favorite. It's not necessarily the best written, but it's the one that comes closest to the heart. It's an exploration, not of heaven, but of the human heart's desire for heaven. And everybody has some sort of desire for heaven, and nobody understands what it means. There's the puzzle. I wrote it partly because I had a crisis of faith when I was a teenager. I decided I didn't want to go to heaven because I thought it would be boring. I was bored with church services. Didn't want to go to hell either, and I knew it couldn't last on earth forever, so I didn't know what I wanted. But uh, there's a serious question there. Uh, we're creatures of time, yet we get bored with anything that's extended long enough. Imagine your ideal heaven. You may not believe in heaven, you may not believe in God, that's okay. Right now you're God, and you're designing heaven for yourself. So make as perfect a picture as you can. All the things you want in heaven in column A, all the things you don't want in heaven in column B. And now imagine getting your heaven. You've got column A forever. How long would it take for you to be bored? Well, I imagine heaven, and it's great surfing waves every day. Okay. Uh, I remember one time on the Jersey Shore, I got there after an exhausting trip. I couldn't even lift a suitcase. It was 5 o'clock. My wife, who was very wise, said, I think you need to go in the ocean. Uh, I took the big board. I went in at 5 o'clock. At around midnight, I noticed it had gotten dark and I hadn't eaten supper. Now, I might have gone for another 12 hours, but I don't think for another 48. Uh, you might imagine infinite unending orgasm. Even if you think you can imagine it, I don't think you can endure it. <laughs> There's no concrete picture that we can even imagine of heaven that's satisfying. We don't know what heaven means. And yet, everybody wants it. But we don't want to be bored. Well, we know what we don't want. What's that? Just more of the same thing. I mean, this is great stuff. But this is appetizers. You want the main course. You don't know what's in the main course. The appetizers are great. But if there's just appetizers forever, eventually they wear on you. Now, I know of nothing else that is universally desired but never understood. Other things that we desire, we have some knowledge of. But here's something we don't know, and yet we desire. Take God. What's the meaning of that word? No matter how well the theologian defines that word, if infinite mystery isn't part of the definition, he's not a good theologian. The human mind cannot comprehend God. Anything that can be comprehended isn't God. It's an idol. And yet everybody wants God, who's sane. Would you rather live in a reality in which there is an infinitely beautiful, infinitely perfect being, or one without that. You've got to be kidding. And yet, we don't know what that means. But we have a desire for it. There's a puzzle. Well, one way to solve puzzles is by analogies. Let's see the closest thing to it. So let's look at all our other desires. We can classify them into two categories, natural and artificial. 
I want a Red Sox World Championship. You don't. That's artificial. I want to go to the Land of Oz. You don't. I want to fly through the air like Superman. I read Superman comic books as a kid. You don't. Those are all artificial desires. I want a Rolls Royce. You want a Jaguar. Okay, that's not universal. It's not innate. It's not natural. It's conditioned by something artificial, something external, like advertising. But every single natural desire, desire for food, for drink, for sex, for sleep, for friendship, for information, for justice, for beauty, always corresponds to a reality. Imagine if you explored the universe and found some planet inhabited by extraterrestrials who are constantly yearning for something that didn't exist. Beings without stomachs that got hungry. Or monosexual beings that kept falling, falling in love with a non-existent second sex. Meaningless. Never happens. Every innate and universal and instinctive desire corresponds to an objective reality. You might not get it. You might die of starvation, but hunger proves food. Well, we've all got a hunger for something we cannot define. Call it God, call it union with God in heaven. Doesn't that at least very strongly indicate that it exists? As C.S. Lewis, who I think has developed this argument better than anyone, puts it, if I can find the passage, which I probably can't, so I'll have to paraphrase it. Uh, all right, here's the paraphrase. Do fish complain of the sea for being wet? But we complain of the world about time. We're always surprised at time. There's never enough time for good things. Gee, I wish I had more time, but there's never enough time. And we're surprised at how time fa goes so fast. My goodness, look at, look at little Johnny, grown up and married already. Would you expect he'd stay an infant forever? We're surprised at time. We act as if it's a foreign environment for us. Well, if the fish complain of the sea for being wet, that suggests one of two things. Number one, they remember having lived on the land. Or number two, they're evolving into amphibians who are going to live on the land. Or both. It's at least a very strong clue. I'm going over time, so let me simply list some questions that the curious mind might ask about what heaven might be like from the book Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Heaven. Uh, you might think some of these questions are silly. I don't think so. Will we all be equal in heaven? Do ghosts come from heaven? Will we have emotions in heaven? Will we be free in heaven? Will we have possessions in heaven? Will we wear clothes in heaven? Surprisingly profound question. Will there be animals in heaven? Is heaven serious or funny? Is there music in heaven? Uh, how big is it? Why won't we be bored in heaven? What will we do? Will there be sex in heaven? What kind of body will you have? Is there time in heaven? Uh, is there really an alternative? Is there a hell? And if so, what is it made of? Is it real fire? And how many roads lead to each place? Is it the Vermont farmer joke, you can't get there from here? Death refutes that one. Just as death refutes Henry David Thoreau's remark on his deathbed when a preacher tried to say, Henry, you've been an agnostic all your life. Don't you think you'd better think about the next world? And Henry said, one world at a time, preacher. That's not practical. But what is practical is to ask some questions. So I'm going to give myself the hook and give you the stage, please.
Thank you so much, Dr. Kraft. We have, uh, we have time, as usual, for questions, uh, about 20 minutes or so. If you want to avail yourself of the microphone at the back of the room, uh, that would be ideal. Or if you prefer standing and speaking very loudly, sure. that is fine, too. Um, no follow-up questions, please, and no questions exceeding 60 seconds in length. Um, if no one has a question, I've got many questions, but I don't want to be rude and be the prime first the one. All right, let me prime the pump. Oh, there's a question back there. Yes, Dr. Craig, the argument you just made a few moments ago that you feel the existence of heaven is imputed by the fact that humans yearn for it, there's a simple counter to that which states that humans yearn for heaven simply because we're afraid of death. How would you address that sort of question? It's true that we want an alternative to death because we're afraid of death. Fear and desire are correlative. You can't have one without the other. You can't kick one without the other. One of the greatest psychologists in the history of the world, Buddha, showed that. Most of us like desire and we don't, want, and we don't like fear. But if you have one, you're going to have the other. So you either take the bitter and the sweet or you throw them both out. Now, I think fear and desire are arrows, signs. I think they point to something. So the fear of death, to my mind, means that we're not supposed to die. That sounds crazy because death is the most natural thing in the world, the most inevitable thing in the world. But little kids are always shocked at death, not just because it's not in their experience. They're shocked in a different way. They often feel guilty about it. Grandpa died. I must have done something wrong. I'm so involved in this. Me and Grandpa are so close that I must have done something wrong and he died. Well, that's, that's not true. But how come that's so universal? Is that just stupid? Of course it's stupid, but it is only stupid. No, I don't think so. I think there's a, a confused insight there. And that is that in all the myths, in almost all the cultures of the world, we were originally immortal. Then we lost it through some cosmic mistake. Adam's apple, Pandora's box. Uh, there's an East African myth where uh, a snake was supposed to communicate the gift of immortality to mankind with a magic bury, and it fell in love with its own tail and swallowed the gift. And in another case, it dropped it into the sea. Uh, somehow we know that death is natural, but it doesn't feel natural. Uh, when Jesus confronted death, Jesus is at the very least the most complete human being who ever lived. Uh, he was outraged. He wept at Lazarus' death, not simply because he had lost a friend, but because he knew, as none of us know, the dignity of what a human being is. And compared with what we're designed to be, this thing of worms and maggots, what an obscenity. And we, we feel that. So I think there's a profound truth in the fear of death, and it's correlative to the love of immortality or the desire for heaven. So that doesn't refute it to my mind. It confirms it. Well, there's various kinds of wisdom. At the very least, there's the wisdom of humor. Oscar Wilde's last words are, I can't endure this wallpaper. So he left. <laughs> and then there's St. Lawrence's humor, 
who was tortured to death by being roasted on a barbecue spit, his last words to the emperor who was tortured him, torturing him were, please turn me over, I'm not done on the left side yet. <laughs> because the great saints and martyrs sometimes can play with life and death. Because they're beyond it. And then there are dying words that are both serious and humorous, like Socrates. His last words were a joke. They thought he was dead. He lifted up the winding sheet and said, Oh, Crito, I forgot something. We owe a cock to Asclepius. Be sure to pay the debt. Is that all? No other answer. Now, Asclepius in Greek mythology is the god of healing. And pious Greeks slept in his temple overnight, hoping for a miraculous healing when they had a life-threatening disease. And in Greek mythology, the gods often mated with mortals, so some Greek doctors claimed to have the blood of Asclepius in them, and they doubled their fees. So if they healed you of a life-threatening disease, their fee, if you were poor, was a cock, and if, it, if you were rich, was a ram. Socrates was poor. So Socrates is saying, in effect, uh, Asclepius has healed me. Well, Socrates was never sick a day in his life. What's the joke? Well, the disease is life. The reason you are here tonight is the same reason I am here tonight. I have a terminal disease. So do you. It's called life. None of us gets out of this alive. So to be able to make a joke about that at the same time as to take it very seriously and almost to thank the God both for life and death simultaneously. I think Socrates was not a, a life-denying person. He was a life-affirming person, yet he had thanksgiving for the gift of death too. That's the kind of cosmic gratitude or total gratitude that I think is one psychological feature in all the religions of the world. Probably the wisest man I ever met, a very old Jesuit priest at Fordham University named Father Norris Clark, told me about how he, uh, he went to Tibet last year just for fun and uh, uh, talked to the Buddhist monks there. And he said, I was very impressed by their piety and their, their thoughtfulness, but not by their philosophy. Uh, so uh, he asked them this question. He put this conundrum to them. He said, what do you think is the essence of all religion? Uh, let's define it psychologically. What is the attitude or feeling or worldview without which there can be no progress? So they thought about it for a couple of hours, and they came back and they said, gratitude. And Father Clark said, I thought that was an incredibly wise answer. And then he went on to say, well, if there's no God, who are you grateful to? And they said, that's a very profound question. We'll have to think about that some more. And I don't know what they came up with. But at least that first answer, I think, is incredibly wise. So Socrates had that. And whatever the meaning of life and death, there's a great mystery in their interplay. It's certainly part of the same plan, unless you're a manichae and say that there's two gods, one of them invented life, the other invented death, and they're fighting forever, and no one of them is ever going to win. Got a question at the microphone? Um, yes, I, um, I didn't have any problem with what Thoreau said on his deathbed at all. It makes perfect sense to me. Um, I have a uh, Christian brother-in-law who likes to ask me what I would say to Jesus 
if he appeared right now and I would say, well, gee, I'm sorry, I never believed in you and would you like a sandwich? I mean, um, <laughs> Jesus is very practical. He would love that answer I think because on a couple of occasions when he performed miracles, people were standing around gaping and he said, feed him. <laughs> um, but on the subject of heaven, I am going to ask you a question that I have puzzled over at times and this is like your daughter. Um, a cat of mine died in November who I loved very much. And then I was thinking, are there, if there is a heaven, if there is an afterlife, um, are there animals in heaven? And if there are animals, will she be there? But if she's there, then what about the cat I had for 16 years that I adored, and how do I split up my affection between them? And then the cat I had when I was a teenager, and my dog, and you know, it was And very, what about the fleas? Um, and the mosquitoes. None of them had that, so I'm not worried about that. Okay. But, you know, it's just, it's just sort of... Uh, I actually started wondering about that. How do you, you, know, how do you divide yourself? Well, my attitude is somewhat pious and somewhat agnostic. A god who could arrange to bang out the Big Bang that produces this universe can certainly arrange a heaven with cats without fleas or maybe combine a heaven for mosquitoes and a hell for people. Somehow the divine economy will take care of it. Um, it would be great if you guys would use the microphone. But since no one's standing there now, I saw a hand back there. Yes. No, it's the only thing in life that doesn't have a purpose. It's the only thing in life is not designed by God. Everything else, all of nature, is innocent and fulfills the divine design. And when we follow our nature, we follow the divine design. Sin is the only thing that counters that. It's the great no. If there is the divine will behind all of being, if all being comes from the divine love of being, and if that love created free creatures who could say no to it, then we're the only things that can resist the universe, which is an astonishing thing. I'm, I'm very sympathetic with very rational people who simply cannot believe in free will uh, and who say, you mean to say that the omnipotent God created beings who could spit in his face and he didn't do anything about it? And I say, yeah, that's what, that's what parents do. I mean, they're, they're, they're bigger than children. They can kill them, but they don't. <laughs> and in the future, they could probably even freeze them in cryogenics, and I'm sure there's going to be some institution, maybe 30 years from now, that advertises, freeze your 12-year-old, we'll thaw her out when she's 20, and avoid the teenage years. <laughs> but a good parent won't do that. <laughs> because we love these little rebels. So God's got strange tastes. Another image that I love comes from the fairy tales. Uh, what's God doing right now, people ask. And one of the answers I give is he's going around the world kissing frogs, turning us back into princes. We've got a lot of warts on us, but you know, we need transformation. So he's got weird tastes. He's a frog kisser. Uh, we've got one question here and then a question back there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me reiterate that in case some people mm. didn't hear it. Uh, you said that you've heard. No, I mean, I, it's been said that death and actual time is a way that God 
Maybe you could reiterate that in the answer. Well, first of all, let me give a more complete answer to the previous question because that will help to answer yours. What's the meaning of the wages of sin is death? A conventional interpretation, which I don't think is adequate, is justice. Sinners deserve to die. God gives you what you deserve. Justice to me is simply the form that love takes. Love is the substantial reality. Love is what God is made of. It's his essence. Justice is simply the way love usually works, but not always. Sometimes it goes way beyond justice. Please, please, when you die, don't ask for justice. That's really stupid. Okay, now, uh, if it's not just justice that is the cause of death, what is it? Well, it's a kind of natural necessity. Once you grant the psychosomatic unity, once you grant that the soul and the body aren't two things, and that we're not ghosts and machines, but single persons with two dimensions, like a poem with a meaning and syllables. Can't be syllables without a meaning, can't be meaning without syllables. At least the meaning without syllables is like a, a play in a book, but it's not performed. Or music on paper and sheet music, but it's not heard. Or a computer program that's there, but it's not doing anything in the computer. That, to my mind, is what the soul is without the body. It can survive, but it's not acting in a fully human way. So I believe it's very natural to believe in the resurrection of the body. All right, if you believe the psychosomatic unity, then sin and death go together. Imagine God as a magnet, source of all life. Imagine three iron rings glued to the magnet and magnetized. The first one is, is your soul. Second one is your body. Third one is your world. In the profoundly true, but to my mind symbolic, picture uh, in Genesis 3, you have this picture of God creating man in his own image, and they're totally happy and in love and in this garden. So the relation between the soul and God is innocence. The relation between the body and the soul is immortality. And the relation between the body and the world is pleasure. Uh, the soul, however, is free to sing Sinatra's song instead of the old hymn. Uh, the song they all sing as they enter hell. I did it my way instead of God's way is the best way. So when that happens, when the first iron ring declares independence from the magnet, the three iron rings are still magnetized, but not as much. And the magnetism is no longer infinite, but finite. So the life force decays and the body eventually dies. So once the soul pulls the plug to God, the electricity in it can't turn on the picture very much anymore, and eventually it dies. And the relation to nature is something that also follows because your body is part of nature. So that's a better way of looking at why there is death. It's necessary. Death is the overflow of sin into the body. But that's a misleading way of putting it, as if the soul is a spirit and the body is an animal. Uh, now, to answer your other question, what about the idea that death is a kind of tourniquet to stop the bleeding, a kind of quarantine to stop the disease? I think that's very profound. And I personally think that the worst thing that ever happened in the entire history of the world would be the discovery of artificial immortality. What would have happened if the Roman Empire had gone on and on and on, become more and more cruel? 
What would have happened if the Third Reich had been the thousand-year Reich that Hitler had hoped for instead of a 15-year-old thing? What would have happened if Howard Hughes had lived for another hundred years? <laughs> Hell on earth. What happens to an egg that's supposed to hatch when it never hatches? Ever smell one? It goes bad. So to quote C.S. Lewis, I don't think we can just go on being a good egg forever. You have to hatch or go bad. That's why you have to die. So I think it's of great mercy. Question back here. Well, they thought he was a ghost. That's easy to believe. Then he says, I'll prove I'm not a ghost. Have you got any food? And they give him food and he eats it. Whatever that is, it is something like the next stage in evolution. Let's just consider evolution as a thought experiment. I, for, I, I abstract from all the scientific controversies and the religious controversies about it. Could an ape really understand what's going on here tonight now? All right, I don't think Jesus is literally the next stage in biological evolution, but if his resurrection body is as much more perfect than our body as we are than an ape, if it can do things that we can't do, like eat and at the same time walk through walls, ascend to heaven and yet be visible, uh, you just, it doesn't fit the categories. I mean, look, look at that story about the ascension. What does that mean? Do you take it literally or symbolically? Did he really go up into the ionosphere? If so, somebody there with a camera could shoot it. And since the speed of light is finite, he must be still in the universe because 2,000 years is not much and 2,000 light years is not much. He's still in the Milky Way galaxy somewhere. That's obviously not what it means. Oh, then it's only symbolic. He just disappeared. No, they saw him ascend. It was with his body. that He didn't go out of his body. The incarnation means he assumed a body, but he didn't leave it. He took it with him. We just don't have categories for it. I say some weird things in this book about the resurrection body. I think it's going to be all face. I don't mean you're going to have eyes in your knees. I mean that right now, right now, your face is magic. Your face is a sacrament. It is not just an object. It's alive. It's a subject. The eyes are the windows of the soul. Every lover knows that. Every artist knows that. And people often speak about body language, not just as a sign, but, well, lovers say, I, I, I could tell her toe from anybody's. Uh, I was in Tokyo, and I met a remarkable man, a Jesuit named Father Hugo Enomio LaSalle, and I found that there was a lot of Buddhist monks that followed him around. And I asked uh, my contact there why. Uh, they're not Catholics. They don't understand the, Latin, the Mass. It was in Latin then. Oh, he is a Buddha. He's not a Buddhist, but he is a Buddha. What does that mean? Well, he is holy to his fingertips. I said, that's a nice saying, but what does it mean? Well, then I met Father LaSalle. 
And uh, they said, you'll recognize him. I said, how? You'll recognize him. Okay, here's 500 people coming out into the quad. I had no idea what he looked like. That's Father LaSalle. How do you know it? Well, he's holy to his fingertips. He's a holy man. And it's not that he had a halo or that he walked in a superior way. He just walked without, again, to use a Buddhist expression, wobbling. There's a wonderful little story about the disciple who goes to the master and says, teach me the secret of Zen. The master says, yes, if you do my commands. I will do anything, master, then wash the dishes. He does it one day after another. The master never tells him to do anything but wash the dishes. One day, years later, he says, master, when will you teach me the secret of Zen? He said, I've been teaching you every day. But all you've told me to do is wash the dishes. Yes. But what else is there? That's all. But I've washed your dishes every day. No, you haven't. You haven't washed the dishes once. But master, what have I done? You wobbled. You wobbled. Another example. The thief on the cross. Here, Jesus is dying. There's two thieves next to him. One bad mouths Jesus. The other repents. Jesus turns to the good thief and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, imagine you're a Jewish mother whose family savings have just been depleted by that thief, and you'll never get them back because there's no insurance. So you're standing around to be sure that that thief gets his comeuppance. And you hear Jesus say that, and you're outraged. And you say, Jesus, how can you do that? He's lived 50 years of crime and harm. He's one of the most horrible persons who ever lived. And now you say, today he's going to be with you in paradise? That's not fair. And I think he'd look to you and say, why are you living in the past? I'm living in the present. Today, I see paradise in his heart. I'm like the father of the prodigal son. I forget the past. I live in the present. How hard it is for us to live in the present. In heaven, we'll live in the present. Question at the microphone. <clears throat> yes, earlier you spoke about how you could have a fact that is an equation or a lot, something you get from logic or a fact that's an experience or a feeling. And um, <clears throat> I know that for myself and I assume for other people that at all times you have a sense of self or an I. You may not know what it is or, or say it's this body or this mind, but you have a sense of I. Whereas <clears throat> no one I know can ever, never, they don't remember their birth and no one knows what it feels like to die. So couldn't you consider the sense of I a fact and birth and death assumptions? No. A fact is an object. Search where you will. You can never find the I as an object. David Hume tried to do that. I look within and I find sensations and thoughts and feelings and reactions, but I can't find anybody who's doing the thinking and the feeling and the reacting. He's right. You can't find the self as an object. The self is a subject. That never shows itself as an object. I guess what I'm saying, I maybe misspoke when I said fact, but I, what I meant to say is that should that not be <clears throat> the object of our investigation rather than defining death or birth? They're very similar. When Socrates gave us the puzzle, know thyself, he was giving you an unsolvable puzzle, a koan. You can't know yourself in the same way that you, that you can know other things, objects. You can know your nature. You can define what it is to be a human being. But what is this I? Imagine there's two identical human beings. They have the same essence, rational animal. They have the same accents. They're identical twins, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, from Lewis Carroll. The only difference is that one is called dumb and the other is called D. And every atom in each body is reduplicated exactly in the other. And they've had the same experiences and the same thoughts and feelings. Is there one of them or two of them? There's two. What makes them two? Well, each one says I and means a totally different being. My I is your you. 
My you is your I. That, to my mind, is the deepest answer to the question, what is the image of God? When God reveals his name to Moses, he doesn't say, I am this or that. He simply says, I am. And we reflect something of that divine mystery. I think we have time for one more question. There are no hands. The tyrant time says this, so that, yeah, make it a that, long question. I have a question from uh, the person in the back. Oh, great. That's excellent. That's excellent. It's the first time for everyone, you realize. Um, any questions? I will ask a uh, very quick question, and maybe we have time for a quick answer, and then uh, we'll have a raffle. <laughs> Um, my question is, uh, when we were together in uh, um, Cambridge at the C.S. Lewis conference, um, I asked you about, C.S. Lewis has a very, I think, um, symbolical and therefore profound understanding of the things we're talking about tonight. And in the novel Paralandra, there's this character called the Unman, who's kind of like this living corpse, um, who represents death, represents evil, represents the devil, a number of things. But somehow he's portrayed as unraveling, as, as though his, whoever he is, is, is becoming, it's unraveling, 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 so there's no there there. And it struck me that, philosophically speaking, that's a kind of a picture of hell. Yep. And I wanted to know if you could unpack that just a little bit for us tonight. Wow. Yes. Uh, the popular picture of hell is that hell is the place where you go if you're very, very bad. And what you do there is you live forever in pain and torture. I think that's mistaken for two reasons. I think we're all bad. Uh, so if there's some dividing line between heaven and hell that depends on how good and bad you are, that doesn't make much sense to me because if you put all your good deeds over in the black ink and all your bad deeds over in the red ink, uh, somebody who scores a 70 will go to heaven, but a 69.9 will go to hell. If I help 100 little old ladies across the street, I'll go to heaven, but if Eric helps only 99 across the street, it won't work. That doesn't make any sense. And even if you get subtler and say, well, my desires, my sincerity, my love is sufficiently strong, well, that's still a matter of degree. It's not just to make an absolute difference between heaven and hell. Depend on what's not an absolute difference, a matter of degree. The effect would be greater than the cause. Now, I believe in hell for one very simple reason. Uh, Socrates. Socrates has taught me the most important lesson any philosopher can ever learn, which is lesson one. If you don't learn this lesson, you learn nothing else. And the lesson is, we don't know anything. To quote Woody Allen, who's a Jewish father whose son became an atheist, and his wife blames him, uh, and Woody says to his wife, well, what, what, why is he an atheist? Well, he can't solve the problem of evil. What do you mean the problem of evil? He wants to know why there are Nazis. Tell him why there are Nazis. And Woody said, I should tell them why there are Nazis? I don't even know how the can opener works. <laughs> I like that line. I don't know how the can opener works either. <laughs> so what do I know about hell? Nothing. So I am perfectly happy to accept higher authorities. Well, Jesus is my authority. 
because here's a man who claims to be the Son of God, to be equal to the Father, to come from heaven. I reason this way. He either is or he isn't. If he isn't, he's the wickedest, stupidest, blasphemous liar and insane person who ever lived. If I claim to be God, you'd put me in a, 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 a straitjacket at the very least. If I just claim to be the best philosopher in the world, you'd say he's an arrogant egotist, but he's probably barely sane. If I just claim to be the best philosopher in the room, you might say, well, he's kind of egotistic, but he, maybe he is. Uh, but if I make it go the other way down, if I, if I claim to be uh, a chicken, you'd say he's nuts. But if I claim to be a frying pan, you'd say he has more and more nuts. So I can't believe that Jesus is nuts, so I accept his claim. So he tells us this is a hell. I wish it weren't so, but there it is. But he doesn't say hell is a place of life. He says it's a place of death. His image for it is Gehenna. Gehenna was a valley outside of Jerusalem. And in that valley, the Jews burned garbage. They wouldn't live there. They do now. There's a housing development there now. It's very modern. But... Uh, <laughs> But they didn't have matches 2,000 years ago. So this was the garbage dump. And the reason they wouldn't live there was that that's where the Canaanites practiced their devotions to the devil. They worshipped a god called Moloch who demanded human sacrifice. And two of the things that they did were strikingly similar to what the Aztecs did uh, about 500 years ago, before Cortez came. They would take little babies... Uh, when they were alive, and the priest with a stone knife would cut the heart out of the baby, and while it was still be beating, throw it into the burning furnace of this idol, and then throw the baby's corpse to the hyenas or the jackals. And they would also take teenage children who, when they reached puberty, were commanded to commit suicide by walking into the fire of the idol because this God demanded human sacrifice. Well, when the Jews saw that, they realized this was not just a human mistake. This was demonic. So they refused to set foot on there, and the only fit purpose for that was garbage. A horrible place. Now, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, gentle Jesus, used that place as his image for hell. Uh, some people have this strange idea that the hell was invented by the church or St. Paul or somebody else. Jesus talks more about hell than anybody. Okay, so I believe in hell. Now, uh, the question was... Way back there, I'm stringing it out to get to 9 o'clock. Back in Cambridge, you asked about... Oh, I was just asking about, in Paralandra, the unman. The unman. And I was He's a demon-possessed man. Hell is a kind of a picture... Death. ...of eternal unraveling unto nothingness, or something along those lines. You might be a little comforted by this picture. It's C.S. Lewis's picture. He doesn't think there are any human beings in hell. He thinks that if you had a vision of hell and you saw your best friend there, you wouldn't recognize him because it's just ashes. Uh, hell is where you go to make an ash of yourself. Uh, what once was a man is no longer a man. Uh, there's a demon-possessed man in the Gospels, and Jesus asks him, Who are you? What's your name? And he can't say, I. He's like Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. He has lost that image of God. He says, our name is Legion, for we are many. Or he's like the captain of the guard at the Black Gate when uh, uh, Gandalf and Aragorn uh, challenge Sauron in the, the third volume. Uh, uh, the guard doesn't have any name. 
He forgot his name. He is known simply as the mouth of Sauron. Now, you can approach that in this life. You can't get there in this life, but you can approach that. You can lose the eye. So you're just shards. You're, you're pieces of personality without anything to hold them together. I think that's a very profound image of, of, of hell. Now, if, if you want to be really scared... If you want to be very, very afraid, read a book that's very difficult because it's written by a mystic who doesn't have a clear vision of things but has a very profound vision of things, but it's a book that's terrifying. Every time I've ever assigned it to a class, there's at least one student in the class that says either I couldn't read the book, I was too terrified, or I wish you hadn't assigned that book. It scared the hell out of me. The book is called Descent into Hell by Charles Williams, friend of C.S. Lewis, and it's about an ordinary little man who goes to hell. And it's not external torture, and it's not fire, and it's not Dante's hell. It's just a man who refuses truth more and more, makes a lot of little choices, and eventually he hates truth. He hates reality. He hates being. He wants to shut himself up in himself. And in a rather respectable and not spectacular way, he just becomes utterly self-possessed. He's consumed with self-esteem and nothing else. Well, if there's any pop psychologists here, I hope I haven't insulted you. But uh, that, I think, is a, a very profound image of hell. Because if there were external fire in hell, I think the damned in hell would be glad because fire is beautiful. Uh, and that would relieve their torture. What happens when in your own life you have the most intense agony? Very often you do things like pull your hair out or bash your head against the wall. Hopefully most of you haven't gotten to that point yet, but people, you know, do that. Why do they do that? Those are painful things. Why do you deliberately add to the pain? Well, because your spiritual agony is so great that the only way to relieve it is by physical agony. So I think hell wouldn't be that bad if it's just fire. I think it's worse than that. I think it's egotism and total loneliness. Because the thing that is our deepest secret, we're all born lonely. We're not all only born ignorant. We don't know who we are. But we're born alone. That mystery of the I. I'm me and not you. The more you love, the more you want to overcome that. And you can't. I wish I could not only understand my wife, but be her for a minute. I wish the science fiction stories were true and we could have a soul transfer for a minute. So that I could understand her, her soul. But I can't, at least not in this life. That's a, that's a deep mystery. Why we're, we're isolated. Well, I think in hell we're totally isolated. On that up note, <laughs> I think a hand of applause for Dr. Crape. <laughs>